let's talk about a couple other teams who also have real expectations this year um, and for, for, for different reasons, potentially. The Golden State Warriors and the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Warriors, let's start with them. Warriors are plus 7.2 per 100 possessions in the month of February, um, where they really come on as the defensive end. They're giving up only 110.9 points per 100. They sent Clay to a reserve role. They've been playing. Why do you Why do you think that is, actually? Why do I think the defensive improvement? Yeah. Well, they've sent Clay to a reserve role. Did they get somebody back? And they've been playing Draymond Green. Not only did they get Draymond Green, he's been playing at the five. Um, and it's also been an answer for them offensively, honestly. Having Draymond Green at all and having Draymond Green at the five. When he's at the five, they're a, a six, plus 6.1 net. And they score 121 points per 100. <laughs> and the lineup of Curry, Pajemski, Wiggins, Kaminga, and Green is destroying teams by 21 points per 100. And that's over 300 possessions with that lineup. That's an insane number to be blowing teams out by 21 points per 100. Um, but not only, Jeff, to your point about Draymond coming back, back, it's not only Draymond coming back to me. To me, it's also <laughs> the return of, of Andrew Wiggins being back to being an NBA player. Um, earlier this season, I really believe he was the most damaging high minutes player in the NBA. And was almost like single-handedly sabotaging the, the Warriors like by himself um, somehow. But but now he's playing solid basketball. He's up to 35% from three. And his defense has improved a ton. Um, so, yeah, I that's the, you can start and talk about Draymond Green if you want. But to me, like Wiggins is a big part of it. Clay going to the bench is a big part of it. Uh, Pajemski's solid defensive impact is a big part of it. Um, green specifically at the five is a big part of it. And, and honestly, Steph Curry is a big part of it because you know, people were sounding the alarm on Steph Curry earlier this season. Like, Oh, is he still really that good? And all this stuff. I mean, so recently he shot, he, I mean, he's, he's shooting eight for his last 37 from three, which is 21%. That has been bad. It's only over the course of three games, but over the new year, since 2024 has arrived, he's been being he's back to being an elite offensive player in the entire game, doing typically regular Steph Curry things um, and being less exploitable on defense. Since to your point, he's playing less with Clay and more with Dre. So, um, yeah, I don't, where do you want to take it from there with the Warriors? Well, to be clear about the Clay Thompson comments you made, you're not even saying that like it's good that he went to the bench because he's playing less minutes. You're also saying that like he's played better since he's gone to the bench too. He's right? played better since he's gone to the bench and it's just better for him to not be playing next to Steph as much anymore. Um, so it's, it's, it's the, essentially staggering the, them because of the defense. You think? Yes. Clay's defense has fallen off. Yeah, I'd agree. I think Clay's um, defense has fallen off and Pajemski is a surprisingly good defender for his size. Yeah. He's a gym rat too. Um, <laughs> Um, true that true that yeah (laughs) i alluded to draymond green and like he's just the most remarkable player to me like you know we used to talk about or we nba fans used to talk about like oh man like i can't wait until lebron ages because we won't have to deal with this anymore like he's just like he's not a good enough shooter once his athleticism goes he's not good and it's like okay like i don't know why people say said that about LeBron, but then like Draymond Green is kind of that, you know, it's like, how is he going to be good when he's not, when he's older and less athletic, how can he possibly do what he's doing? And you just like, if you really want to get smarter as an NBA fan or as a basketball fan, just 
watch Draymond Green defensively. He is so much smarter than almost everybody else on the court. The rotations he makes, the stunts he makes, the help, like he is the definition of a one-man defense. And look, I, I know I'm a bit more extreme on this than you are, um, and we both love Steph Curry, but I truly believe that the foundation of the Warriors is actually built around both of them. And I do think that Steph, of course, historically is better than Draymond Green. Like I think Steph Curry, I have him in the, my top 10 of all time. I think he's one of the greatest basketball players to ever live. But in the modern age where the talent pool has become so large and it's just harder for one really good player to win on his own, I'm not sure the Warriors have near the success they do if Draymond Green doesn't become the player that he does. And I think that maybe not just as important as Steph Curry, but I just think what he does for the defense is as singularly unique as what Steph Curry has done for the Warriors offense. And he's showing it again this season. He's just been fantastic. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable point. Yeah, you're right. It does go a little bit further than where I would go, like just because... And, and the reason is not because of what you're saying is not true. I think it is true. I think Draymond Green has is one of the greatest defender, defensive players of all time in the NBA. Um, you could argue for him as being the best, honestly, the greatest. Um, and I agree. There is, just to, I'm sorry to interrupt you. There is a very reasonable argument that he's the most impactful defender in the history of the NBA. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. I think there's a credible argument for that. At the same time, just the reality in terms of how the NBA works is that offense is just more important than defense, at least where we are right now and where we have been historically, you know, especially recently. And so because of Curry's offensive impact, it just makes him a more valuable player. Um, Can I ask you a question about the the statement you made? Because you kind of said it like it was a fact and I just kind of want to play the devil's advocate for a second. Yeah, I would love that. Yeah. So, you know, you, you you said offense has been more important than defense, and I, I think I would agree with that. Uh, I, I would have definitely agreed with that 10 years ago. Is it possible that with the, the rule changes, with the influx of offense, with all the talent that we have, that the uniqueness of a singular defensive presence like Draymond Green actually makes defense more valuable than offense? Or excuse me a player who impacts defense like that more valuable than a player who impacts offense like that, just in the sense of it's actually easier to get an off a guy who's really good at offense than it is to get a guy who's really good at defense. Well, I, yeah, the, to me, those are two different questions. So is it easier to get a guy who's really good at offense than a guy who's really good at defense? Probably, but we're talking about at the highest levels, we're talking about like, the best offensive impact players in the game versus the best defensive impact players in the game. Um, and when you, when you go immediately, when you go to the highest level, like you can't impact defense as much as you can impact offense. And that's why like, there's just a ceiling on how much you can impact defense because you're one person and you can't, you can't say, Hey, I'm going to take everybody one-on-one. -on -one. Like if you could stop the game and say like, we're going to have our defensive player match up with whoever has the ball. Every time the ball moves to someone else, then yeah, yeah, defense would be more more impactful and more important potentially. But the fact that you can't like I can just go away from Draymond if I want, and he can just not be involved in a play, makes it so that 
he cannot be more impactful than the most impactful offensive players in the game. For instance, Steph Curry impacts every single offensive possession just by virtue of his gravity. And then when he has the ball, he's making decisions. You could run things through Steph as much as you want. Um, you can't argue do that you defensively. Just, you just, you just, you just created defensive gravity, though. I, I did, and I and I and I was thinking about like it as I, I was Green, saying. If Draymond Green, if Draymond Green's singular presence is forcing you to be like, eh, we're good, like in a Darrell Rivas way, like we're just going to go to the other side of the course court. You are impacting just by that. You're taking away half the court. Yeah, I I, I and I and I, I hear what you're saying, but I I don't think it works quite that way. Like. Um, so, for instance, taking away half the court, I don't think it it necessarily works. Works like you're like Draymond Green is taking away half the court. I think he's he he's impacting the defense in this broader way through like defensive gravity, as you suggested. It's almost like weird because it's like the opposite of gravity it, when you're on defense because you're like pushing away. I don't know how what term that would be. There's actually no force that's like like oppositional to gravity. I don't know if you know that, Jeff, um, but I had looked yeah. into this one time. There's nothing. Isn't it just like, called zero gravity? <laughs> yeah, but that's not an oppositional force. That's like the lack okay, of okay. gravity, right? Like that's. Um, that, but a, a, anyway, I. It's like, opposite, <laughs> it's like the opposite of lube. It's what? What is defensive lubricant? What is? What is? What is friction? Defensive, <laughs> the, <Yeah>. <laughs> defensive <laughs> friction. Defensive friction is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. When we're yeah, huge, in, like, when we're good. huge in three years. These are going to be great things to flash back to. You know, like these these. These conversations. Can I can I tell you a just a fact that sure. I'm not going to say it's going to change your perspective, but it is. Okay. I do find it kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. So the Celtics, Thunder, T Wolves, Cavs, and Pelicans are the top five teams in the NBA in net rating right now. Currently, they are in order: first, second, third, fourth, and sixth in defensive rating. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. You can finish. I guess I, I'm not drawing any conclusions. I guess I feel like it's just possible that defense actually has you. I, it might be more important to be a really good defense than to be a really good offense today, just because of how uh, offense is everywhere, man. Like it's just that's just what it is. Like that everyone knows to shoot threes, and yeah, you need one of the best offensive players. You're gonna need that, but everyone is creating good offense through you know, the influx of analytics and smarter shot mapping. I just think that's so much more prevalent than defenses who are playing 48 minutes. It's possible that it's actually more valuable than ever to be a really good defense. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of merit to that. And especially, you know, in the context that you're describing it, but I just want to be clear that this is like a separate question from the one that we were just talking about. We were talking about an individual player's defensive impact versus an individual player's offensive impact. And then what you just talked about was a team's defensive rating versus a team's offensive rating. So like, even if I were to grant you like an individual defensive player helps the team's defensive, right? But they can't help it as much as an individual player can help the offensive rating. That's the point. Like, that's what I'm talking about. We're talking about an individual's impact. So if even if I were to grant you like, yes, it's more important to have a great defense as a team than it is to have a great offense as a team. If I were to grant you that, that would it wouldn't then follow that like it's more important to have the highest impact defensive player than the highest impact offensive player. Because so, for instance, we look at EPM um, and we sort by defensive EPM that the, the highest impact defensive EPM player is plus at plus 4.0, which is actually Isaiah Hartenstein, which is hilarious. Um, and what that means is if we control for all of these, these variables, 
Um, we're estimating that Hartenstein's impact on defensive rating is po- four points per 100 possessions. That's what that that's what that number actually means. And if we sort by offensive impact, then we find that the highest number we see is Nikola Jokic at plus 7.8. So almost double in terms of the actual uh, effect towards the outcome. So because because Isaiah Hardenstein can be involved in a ton of plays because he's protecting the rim, and oftentimes you're going to go to the rim if you're the offensive team, he can affect a ton of, of defensive possessions and, and creating all of this great impact. But we're seeing it cap out at like plus four, right? But on offense, I could run everything through Nikola Jokic. So we're seeing it cap out at closer to plus eight. So despite, you know, you know, let's say defense was more important, uh, the best defensive impact player is not going to be as valuable as the best offensive impact player. Is it possible that EPM isn't fully capturing that? Like, let's just say, let's say Nick's opponents just said, like, Isaiah Hardenstein is the best rim protector we've ever seen. We're not going near him. And then they just took nothing but contested threes for the entire game. Is it possible that e- that defensive EPM wouldn't fully capture the impact that Isaiah Hardenstein is having? Um, I mean, possible it wouldn't fully capture it, but not possible that it wouldn't pick up on it. Like, that's what e- defensive EPM is trying to capture. It's trying to say, when this guy's on the court, what are what's results? Like, what are the outcomes now that we see defensively? So if Isaiah Hardenstein was the best rim protector ever, um, you know, a Rudy Gobert type player or like a future Victor Wembanyama type player, then defensive impact, defensive EPM would capture that. They would say, oh, when this guy's on the court, the whole shot diet changes completely and the team's defense is, the team's, the opponent's team's offense is terrible. Um, And then his defensive impact would be through the roof. And actually, currently it is through the roof, which is only a plus four because you you can only do so much as an individual defender um, in terms of affecting the the you know the opponent's offensive possessions and that's just like the reality of how things are right now maybe a player like Wemby will change that and we will see a plus eight <laughs> defensive EPM I I wouldn't I wouldn't be shocked to see it like honestly from a guy like Wemby Yama who who is already at a plus 3.2 in his in his 20 year old rookie season dude and- he's he's unreal <laughs> like I just he's dude he has a 10% block percentage and a th- over 30% usage that's impossible nobody's ever done that impossible has anybody yeah. ever did Hakeem ever do that I'm trying to think of anybody who could have done that I don't know. We'd have to look back at it, but I'd be shocked if if anyone's ever done that. Yeah. Like he's basically a one man offense for this terrible team. And then on the other end, he's like treating opponents like they're play kids on a playground. <laughs> like it's like, did you see the block from last night where he didn't even jump? Yeah, and he just he just snatched the ball. Yeah. He just like turned around and like reached his arm. And I was like, dude, go away. You know, like oh my God. He's he also is at a thirty percent defensive rebounding percentage, by the way. Which Yeah, that was I mean, that was the concern for him, right? Like it was like yeah. he's too fragile, he's gonna get nope, he's just he just vacuums nope. every single rebound. This was the same game where he had that block where he where he literally like turned and just saw a small human to him and then just like <laughs> reached his hand out and just said, oh, no, I will take that. Thank you. It, it, that's the same game where he did a dribble combination uh, crossover on on who was it? It was on Kyle Anderson, a dribble combination crossover on Kyle Anderson to a step back to a fading three that he hit while he wasn't looking at the basket as it went in. So this is in that same game. So, um, yeah, Wemby's a whole different ball game. Like, again, like I said, I can imagine Wemby Yama having a plus 
seven defensive impact or something and something that we've never seen before. But that would be because he is like essentially like cutting off half the court or like essentially like making the rim something somewhere you can't go. But right now you can't really do that. And one of the reasons you can't do that is because of the prevalence of five out offenses. So you can't just say, Hey, I'm going to shut down the rim. Like these teams have all kinds of techniques that they try to implement. Like look at the Celtics to try to keep their rim protectors at the rim, but you have to like really try to keep your rim protectors at the rim. You have to play Porzingis on a non shooter. You have to um, have him, you know, you have to pre switch to get guys so he can not be involved in picking roles. Like, yeah, you have to put him in a drop and get like, you can't just say, I'm going to plant my guy at the rim and you're not going to be able to score. If you could do that, then yeah, we, then it'd be a different story, but you just can't. And then if we have a five out offense, then you literally can't. Um, so, so you'd never be able to have that same impact against a team like OKC. If you have like the, the greatest rim protector of all time is still only going to be able to do so much against a team like OKC or a team that another team that has um, a five out offense. So um, yeah. So, so for those reasons, I just don't think that Draymond Green can even like definitionally be as valuable as Steph Curry has been. But I do think he is the corollary in terms of offense and defense. And I totally agree. I mean, clearly the second most valuable player to those championships and and all that stuff as well. Can we also just say like, we're talking about overall defensive impact, like, and we're talking about ways that a defender could theoretically, you know, um, approach peak offensive impact. And you think about defense, you think about, on-ball defense, you think about rim protection, and then you think about off-ball defense. You know, every Knicks fan who listens to this and who listens to me on uh, like Strickland post game, you know how much I love Emmanuel Quickly. I love his defense, and I used to you know post all these clips of Quickly like going from one side of the court to the other to bail out a teammate. Like he is like the king of the random stunt of of recognizing a breakdown and you know basically putting a bandaid over a bullet wound, you know, just temporarily fixing it and letting the rest of the defense catch up. That is what quickly does as well as almost any player in the league. But you know, who does it better than Emmanuel quickly is Draymond green. He's like, he's somehow like a guard who can stunt and be everywhere on the court, but then he's also an elite rim protector. And then randomly he can just, you know, guard a big in the post on the ball and he can guard a wing on the perimeter on the ball. Like, I think that I just can't get past just how many different things he does for this defense. He is the entire solar system for this defense and has been for 10 years now. It's just, it's amazing to watch. Yeah, I, I think that's spot on. And I, I love the comparison with Draymond to quickly. And if, if you know how good a defender quickly is, imagine like quickly who's, you know, six inches taller and also has longer arms and also much stronger and also better on ball. Like it's just it's just absurd what Draymond Green can do. Um, but I do want to say I, I do think a weakness of potential weakness for Draymond Green is like it is his size, like his size is a strength in terms of his lateral quickness and ability to to to, to recover and, and make all kinds of movements that other guys bigger can't um, be able to guard on ball on the perimeter but at the same time we see what happened when denver played um golden state recently Jokic just dominated him it's just too big and and is able to shoot over the top is able to kind of get to his spots um you can't just guard one-on-one Jokic against draymond green and so that is a weakness that potentially can, you know, show its head if Draymond Green is playing the five for you in playoff type situations. I'm not making an excuse for him. Like I, I agree with the 
quote unquote criticism you just offered. I will say if struggling against Nikola Jokic is a limitation, like it's okay. That's okay. Like we will let yeah, you slide, that. I'm like, I don't know how many people. And I thought it was really <laughs> cool, by the way. You know, there's this perception of Draymond everywhere. Some of it deserved, you know, like it's, it's very frustrating as a neutral NBA fan to watch him consistently get away with things that nobody else would get away with, you know, just screaming in ref spaces and like in that game against the Nuggets, he literally just like shoved Jokic after a foul and then like started screaming at a ref. And I was like, uh, what, what, like the rules just not apply right now. But so I get it. I get it. But I did, I did think it was really cool. Like just the dust settled, that game was over and he just immediately hops on a podcast and it's like, dude, Nikola Jokic is awesome. You know, like, and he was just, he was so humble about it. That that's just the kind of thing that vibe I vibe with very heavily. I love, you know, humility and self-awareness and, an attempt at objective analysis. And I thought it was cool to see that from him. Yeah. To, to that point, I totally agree. And, and one of the reasons I love Draymond Green um, is that kind of thing, but also because and and our listeners would never imagine this. Like when I play basketball, I am Draymond Green. <laughs> like he would, he would not, he would not expect that, but like they, almost exactly the same like i will especially if it's like a competitive game that matters you know maybe on a small high school or whatever it is but i am constantly talking i am talking trash to everyone i am fiery i am battling like i'm not backing down from anyone like I, it's literally like exactly how like there are my friends just often say like they'll text me and be like uh, friends that I've played basketball with, they've tra- they'll text me and be like, "Damn, Draymond's pulling a U right now." Like that—that that is like literally what happens. So I—I I, I love that about Draymond. <laughs> how uh, how tall are you? Five ten. Nice. I guess when you visit, we can do like the first ever high end theory one on one game. Just to, I just want <laughs> I don't I I just want a reason to not like you. You know, like and so. You- <laughs> Yeah, if that's love, what you want to do. Yeah, I that's love, gonna. I would love to just one afternoon get my ass kicked and just hear you be like, "Yeah, bitch," you know, like, that shit I, would, out of I, here. I wouldn't though. That's the thing. Like, that's the thing. Like, I don't talk. I only. I I never talk trash first, and that's why I think that that's why the comparison is like the thing, right? Like, I'm so like humble and like nice, and to everybody on the court, like, oh, "Hey, what's up, buddy? How you doing?" Blah blah blah. But as soon as someone talks to me, it's over. Like, I'm just going off. So, um, <laughs> so it's not. I wouldn't just do it for. I wouldn't just be like. And for instance, like you, I'm sure are like a better basketball player than me like when in the ways that we think of like basketball so like um you know my best skill offensively is ball handling uh but I, anything else i'm not great at so you know i I'm, i know you can shoot like 10 times better than me like i'm sure you have more basketball skills than i do defensively i'm a monster though so you'd be yeah you probably wouldn't be able yeah, to score I'd like just get really annoyed. <laughs> that's what would happen you would win because i'd get really annoyed um no, let's talk good. about what were you gonna say yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I was good a long time ago. It's been a minute. I haven't shot basketball in, I don't know. It's We, we used to play this game uh, when I lived in Indiana. It was like one of the most fun games uh, as a way to work out. Um, so you get like two or three people and it's called 21. And one of you starts with the ball. By the way, I'm not describing actual 21. I know yeah, I was, was going to say, <laughs> we used to play um, this game. No, no, we called it 21. That would be so fun. No, it's a different version. It's okay. a different version of start the ball. First person shoots a three, and that person has to just keep moving around the arc back and forth. Mm. And the other two people rebound for him, and you just keep shooting on the move until you miss two in a row. 
And then once you're not, yeah, when, until you miss two in a row. Once you miss two in a row, the next person goes, and you just keep going over and over again until somebody makes 21. And so it's 21 like, straight? No, 21 overall. You oh, 21 it. points overall. It's like, uh, that game would go on forever. Running, you keep a running score. Okay, gotcha. And so gotcha, it's just gotcha. a good way to like up your endurance, your basketball endurance and to practice movement shooting. Um, I love that. That's, yeah. a, that's a great game. Yeah. Yeah, it was good shit. Thanks for explaining 21 to me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, this is Thanks why people pay us the, this is why people pay us the big bucks. <laughs> exactly. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, well we I, could... I I was mansplaining to you because we, as we've learned, we're both red pill brothers. You know, you're you're choosing the radio. God, group, to yeah. say that, and then we don't have time to <laughs> to adequately like explain the behind, like the reason to that what you're saying that is so unfortunate. Sorry. <laughs> I, this is this is humor, folks. For for those who need to. We need to have that explained. Um, Anybody needs that explained to them. Grow up, like oh my god. Sorry. No, you're good. I'm being sarcastic, people. Obviously, <laughs> God. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of defensive intensity that we've been talking about, a team that has a lot of defensive intensity. That's the most ridiculous transition ever. I was just like, I was like, I need to transition it somehow. We've just gone somewhere else, and it's like, I don't know. <laughs> have you ever, have you ever heard the guy? He does like a. Sixers podcast and he was talking about Kobe Kobe passing away and he was like he was like oh man that shit's rough and he's like speaking of rough and then he does an ad read right after that speaking of rough my facial hair feels so rough when I don't yeah, have you, my yeah, uh, he, he yeah. was literally that I was oh my god it's so fucking funny I mean Kobe dying is really sad but that that was Holy yeah. shit, that was unbelievable. Anyways, to your speaking, transition. Speaking of things that are unbelievable, the Cavs were the, were unbelievable in January. <laughs> the Cavs, the Cleveland Cavaliers were unbelievable in January, the hottest team in basketball. Um, actually, like, I, I would say, like, honestly, like, seriously, like, utterly dominant in that stretch on both sides of the ball. Um, in February, they've cooled off considerably, although they've still been great. Like they're not like cooled off. Like they're not good anymore. They are plus 7.6 net in February, 11th best offense, fifth best defense. Um, we saw the big shot from Struess, uh, who has been awesome to knock off Dallas. And to be honest, like the half court shot that he made to win wasn't the most impressive part of Struess's game that day. He was, he kept them in the game and like actually propelled them to victory. Incredible. Um, I love talking about the Cavs because they are like my perfect case study. Um, uh, but I, I will let, I'll let you decide where to start, where we talk about, because I'll, there's an obvious place where I would start when we talk about Cleveland, but w- where do you want to start talking about the Cavs? And when you say they're your perfect case study, you mean for your cloning experiment? <laughs> yes. For my, for my cloning experiment. Actually, they have two, they have two cloning experiments going on simultaneously because I have two on ball guards that are very similar and redundant in Donovan Mitchell and, and Darius Garland. And then I have two rim protecting bigs, uh, defensive anchor bigs who are relatively similar in Evan Mobley and Jared Allen. So so I just want to say, and I think it'll lead into what you want to talk about. We talked earlier about the Knicks and how, you know, it's on Tibbs to do the best he can with this roster and to make certain rotation decisions, um, put people in certain roles where they'll be maximized. And I long-term have never liked the idea of Mobley and Allen together. I don't think it works. I don't think at the highest level it can work. I think that 
any really good team will basically make those minutes untenable due to the lack of space. And, you know, both, uh, both Mobley and Allen are good rim protectors, but when they play together, one has to be on the perimeter more and chasing, you know, a smaller uh, stretch four around. That's difficult. I think JB Bickerstaff has done just an admirable job trying to stagger them and trying to make it work with both players on the roster. I've really loved seeing his experimentation with substituting to make sure that basically they play as infrequently as possible. Because one thing that you and I, especially me, often forget, like, you know, we we made the conversation about the cloning thing. Like, what if we could just, you know, what if there was the rule that they couldn't be on the court together at the same time? And I feel like you and I, you know, with this Mobley Allen thing, both of us would just be like, yeah, they just shouldn't play together. They should just be like what Tibbs did with uh, Randall and Obi. You know, they should just be zero sum. But these are two, uh, depending on who you ask, good to really good players who have egos and probably want to be out there for 30 plus minutes at night. That's something, you know, Mobley was a top three pick. Allen's been an all-star I don't think it's reasonable to go up to one of these guys and be like, sorry, bud, like you were only going to play you 20 minutes a night. I, I don't think that's a reasonable expectation. And so I think Bickerstaff is doing the best he can by starting both. And look, I'm watching these games and I see Mobley come out with eight minutes left in the first quarter, you know, and he's like, okay, like, yeah, you're starting and you're going to play close to the minutes you want to play. He's playing, I mean, Mobley's playing 31 minutes a game this year. Allen's playing 31 minutes a game this year. I don't think either is discontent with the overall minutes they're playing. And so if you're getting them close to the overall minutes they want to play, but you're doing it by staggering them as much as possible, I truly believe that gives them the best chance to win at the highest level this season. And that's not an easy thing to realize as we as Knicks fans are very, very aware. Like it's, it would be easy to just be like, okay, these are two of the four players we're building around just going to play them as much and and they've got to figure it out. But I think Bickerstaff has identified their weaknesses and is doing the best he can to maximize not only them as individuals, but the overall team. Uh, and, and yeah, I, if I was a Cavs fan, I would be really encouraged by how he's been staggering them recently. Yeah, I agree with you. And you actually pointed this out to me. I mean, you, you, you were texting me one night and saying like, oh shit, like Mobley's coming out like so early into the first quarter and he's doing this awesome job staggering them, Bickerstaff. And I agree with you. I think that's really cool and honorable that he's doing it and trying to balance like getting both of these guys who are high level NBA players to both play as much as possible while making sure that it's he's mitigating the redundancy that they give when they're on the court together. And there's, but there's only so much you can do as a coach, right? Like the redundancy that they have between those two players, in my opinion, is the entire reason like trades exist. Like you, you, you just have two players who both have a lot of value, you know, ostensibly, and you, they don't offer the skill set that you need to maximize your team because they both have a very similar skill set. So you trade one to get a player who is as valuable or nearly as valuable but offers the actual skills that you want to 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 actually make your team better so like that's the reason why trades exist i i and and i've been talking about the Cavs. i've been saying the Cavs should trade mobley for 
a while already. Like I've been, I've been on this. I, I mean, I, my one of my first podcasts ever on Nick's Film School. I mentioned a hypothetical Mobley trade, um, and I think I said for Pascal Siakam at that time, which wouldn't really make a ton of sense because Pascal can't also can't shoot. <laughs> um, but I thought I thought of Pascal as a better shooter um, than than he has been. I won't say he can't shoot. Obviously, he can shoot, but um, not not enough. I think that would be the most uh, impactful deal that they can make. But but something like that, you know. And and so for me, I, I just think that's why trades exist first and foremost and secondly i do think i'm just lower on mobley overall as a player just just i just am than most people than you i know jeff than most people i talk to and that's because i don't think i think he can potentially be a five a a full-time starting five long term but i don't think that that's a guarantee um with mobley at the five i just looked at the lineup data they're barely a net positive and the reason is because their offensive rebounding percentage is in the fourth percentile with Moby at the five, fourth percentile in the entire league, which is insane. And their defensive rebounding is 27th percentile in the league with Mobley at the five. And you might say, well, isn't, don't you see similar like statistical data points with someone like Chet Holmgren? And maybe, but guess what? Chet is also shooting an insane rate from three. Like I, he's probably close to 40% from three. So that makes all the difference. And Mobley doesn't offer you that. So you're losing on the rebound. You're getting great rim protection for sure. But you're losing out on the rebounding. And you're losing out on the spacing. Like it, you're just not getting enough back. You have to have one of those to me. Your five has to give you either elite spacing or elite rebounding. I genuinely believe that. And obviously it's not... It's not a hard and fast rule because you could have other players that compensate and, and do other things. So it's not a hard and fast rule. But for the most part, that's a rule I would probably try to live by. A guideline I would probably try to live by. And Mobley doesn't give you either. So to me, I think he's very much limited. I'm not sure where what he's going to be if he never learns to shoot. I'm not sure where his impact is going to end up in this league. And I think Jared Allen is, to me, clearly a better player than Evan Mobley. So... The Cavs' top three most played lineups are their starting lineup with Mobley and Allen both playing, and then two iterations of uh, single big plus four shooters, one with Allen, one with Mobley. The starting lineup, which has played 265 minutes, has a net rating of plus 1.7. It's barely treading water relative to how good they are overall. The Allen iteration of Allen plus shooters is at plus 19.6 per 100 possessions. Absolutely obliterating opponents. The Mobley iteration, Mobley, Okoro, Lavert, Niang, Garland, plus 22.3 per 100 possessions. And it has all the indicators that you were just talking about. If you look at defensive rebound percentage, if you look at offensive rebound percentage, the Mobley lineup is doing the worst. But assists are way up. True shooting percentage way up. There are things that could be pointing positive in that direction. I personally think that Mobley does offer gravity that uh, Allen doesn't, even if he he doesn't shoot as much and and hasn't developed a shot. I don't know how to properly represent this argument, but I just see like you know how like when you watch a guy who like Go- uh, Gobert when. When, a, when the T-Wolves play the Bucks and Gobert is the screen setter, Brooke Lopez is playing an even more exaggerated version of drop coverage. You know, he's basically just planted in the paint. 
and they're trusting the ball, uh, the point of attack defender to fight around the screen and stop whatever pull up three could happen with the ball handler. But they're sagging off Gobert completely. They don't care basically that he's out there setting a screen. I think that relatively, and I, and I mean this, I don't mean in a vacuum compared to rest, the rest of the league. I think relative to each other, Mobley does offer slightly more positive gravity and does force the defenders out on the perimeter a little bit more because he's better with a head of steam as a ball handler. He's a better passer. I don't think teams want him in those short roll situations as much as they want Allen. So look, I'm not saying he's a finished product. I'm not saying that he doesn't have growth area. I just think that relative to Allen, it's not a neutral thing. He does offer a little bit more gravity. I think the only true weakness relative to Allen is the rebounding. And I think he makes up for it in other areas where he would be a passable five. And when you're thinking about team construction and team building, I don't know about you, XJ, but if I was a Cavs fan, and even if I felt like you did, even if I was like, ah, not sure Mobley can work long-term at five, if they just if they drafted him number three, and the whole idea was like he's gonna be this game changing, basically what Chet Holmgren has become, like that's what Mobley was supposed to be. Mobley was supposed to be the first of that mold, and if they drafted him to be that, and then didn't even try it, I would lose my fucking mind. Like I think I think it would just be a huge overall uh, like slight or negative on the it would cast a huge cloud over the the vibes in cleveland as a fan and this says nothing of if they lose mitchell if they traded mobley and then mitchell walks and not only do they not have mitchell but they don't have the guy who look you can think allen's better than mobley now i don't i disagree but i i I respect your opinion and i think it's a reasonable opinion you'd Definitely rather have Mobley long-term. The age, the ceiling, I think you have to agree with that. And if you trade Mobley and you lose Mitchell, this is this is the conundrum they've been in, XJ, is that, yes, there is a lot of logic to trading Mobley, but the long-term ramifications, if, if things go a certain way and they don't get the instant team success that you want, that looks really bad. But on the other side, if they trade Allen, you're getting far less. So they're kind of... In a, they're in a huge pickle, I guess. I, I don't have a better word for lack of a better word. Yeah, I I appreciate all your points. Um, I I dis I vehemently disagree with all three of your points, actually. <laughs> so so starting with the first one. So on the lineup data, I just think that lineup data, I I I would completely throw it out like entirely. I wouldn't even cite it. And and the reason is that's convenient. Uh, <laughs> No, no, no. I'm going to tell you why. Like, it's not convenient. It's because it's it's a sample size reason, first of all. Like, I so I'm looking at the same data again. I I don't think you look at five man lineup data until it's like 500 possessions. Um, less than five at 500 possessions, it's like okay, that's interesting. At like 700 possessions, you're probably like okay, this is legit. Less than 500 possessions, it's like it's useless. Like I, there's, I don't, I wouldn't even look at it. So, but, and, and the line of data that you cited specifically Garland, Levert, Okoro, Niang, Mobley is at 185 possessions. Um, I don't think that's meaningful or really helps us understand what's going on. And also that lineup against, we're talking about Levert and Niang and Garland. Obviously that lineup is very likely exclusively playing against bench units and they should be bench units with that lineup. Like I, I we, we need we need we need to stop doing that. Like this this Knicks fan thing of like 
It's not a Knicks fan thing. What do you mean? They they literally are they playing against bench units. It's like exclusively a Knicks fan thing. Like it's like it's like we've all been gaslit to think that if you come off the bench, that you only play against bench players. No, 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 I'm not saying that they only play against bench units. I'm just saying that this is largely not playing against another an opponent's starting five. Like, do you disagree with that? I, I would be surprised if there's a single possession that this unit played against an opponent's starting five. I would be surprised if there wasn't. Okay, but if there it is, it's like five possessions. Like, how many possessions do you think this is well, that you, they've you started? Just the goal. You just shifted the goalpost. You how many? You'd be surprised if there was a single possession. Now you're like, okay, maybe five. No, I would. I would still be surprised. I wouldn't not be surprised. But I'm just saying, like, if it, if they have, it's not many. Like, I would still be surprised if it's one. Like, I maintain that statement. And if they have, it's not many. And that it, the bench. When I say bench units, I don't mean like hockey shift rotations that they're playing against five other guys off the bench i mean they're not playing against opponents starting fives that's my point so when you look at a starting five of 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 mitchell Struess, um allen wade and okoro then they are playing against other opponents who have started their five players their five best players their best five-man rotation or best five-man lineup they're playing against those guys. This other lineup that you mentioned, they're they're almost never playing against those guys. That's my point. That's what I mean by that, which is just objectively true. That's not like a, a Knicks fan thing. That's just literally that's true. Um, and so, okay, so not only that, then it's also very few possessions, not enough possessions to really care about it. So that's one thing. So I wouldn't really care too much about that lineup data. Uh, Allen versus Mobley, we're talking about like just offensive value. I don't think they're even comparable. I don't think Evan Mobley com- like creates anywhere near the gravity that Allen does in terms of his ability to cut hard to the basket in the short roll. I think they're comparable. I don't know that Mobley's like a way better passer in the short roll. Like Jared Allen's gotten so good at passing. Um, and he, I don't, maybe, maybe Mobley's a little better, but I don't know that he's that much better. Um, and then in terms of like the threat from the mid range, <laughs> Evan Mobley shoots 35% from the mid range, which, you know, he shot 37% from the mid range last year and 38% the previous year. It's and if we look at Jared Allen, which I'm going to look at Jared Allen right now, he's shooting 52% from the mid range this year on very low volume, but he's clearly a threat from the mid range to make um, short mid range shots when he pulls them. Uh, I don't think that they have any level of similar gravity when we're talking, we're comparing the two. Um, EPM would agree. EPM, uh, Evan Mobley's offensive EPM is minus 0.8 this year, was zero last year, and minus 1.5 the previous year. Um, Jared Allen is plus 1.8 this year, plus 1.2 last year, plus 1.7 the year before. I, I don't think, I just think objectively they're not comparable offensive players. You could say that you think Mobley long-term will be, but right now there, there's, there's just no comparison between them in terms of offensive impact. Um, as, as all you, all you talk about when you talk about like EPM and stuff is how important it is to, to, you pointed out at the start of the show, how important it is to recognize that it's capturing what they're doing in their roles. This yeah. season, Evan Mobley has played 481 of his 1,055 minutes with Jared Allen. Jared Allen plays 100% of his minutes in his ideal role. Evan Mobley is playing almost half of his minutes in a suboptimal role. So how, um, can you use, how can you use overall offensive EPM to try to capture what he's capable of in the role at the five when he's not in that role? He's in that role barely half the time. That's, that's just, a good. That's, that's a good point. That's a really good point. The, the only thing I would say, I would say, there's a lot of merit to that point. The only thing I would push back on is that Allen is not 
playing his ideal role every time because his ideal role includes not having Evan Mobley gunking up shit next to him. <laughs> but but he's played a ton of minutes without Mobley, so so that's 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 totally valid. I think that's a valid. That's true. But when that. The, you do agree that when they're on the court together, even though there's not an optimal spacer at power forward. Allen is always the primary screen setter and is always doing the thing that he's comfortable doing. So offensive EPM is closer to capturing what his true impact is. I don't think, I don't think offensive EPM is close to capturing what Evan Mobley would do if he played a full season at center and there was no Jared Allen. Yeah. I think that that's a, I think that's a valid argument. Um, I think that's a valid argument. And I think, but I, I think you can say the same for his defensive impact as well. So I think that, Mobley has the, the 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 great position of be of not being the primary rim protector in most situations and not having to always finish off the possessions with defensive rebounds because he has Jared Allen to do that and that's kind of what they do. So I, I think I think it works both ways. But you're totally right. That's a it's a great point to bring up. Um, and the last point before we kind of close out the pod, just to push push back on the last thing that you said about the Mobley experiment, like like how you would feel as a Cavs fan. Um, the only issue. I would have with that is is that it's just to me it's like a sunk cost it's like things are things have changed like you know like you didn't know where you were at you didn't know you were going to get Donovan Mitchell you got Donovan Mitchell um now you're competing for a championship potentially like sorry it didn't work out because we were better than we thought we would be <laughs> and, and Jared Allen's better than we thought he would be and the dynamic that we have the synergy that we have without Mobley is better than we thought it, w- it would be like and that just changes things and so yeah we didn't get a chance to try this thing and 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 to make it work but the whole point of making it work or trying all the things is to win a championship that's the entire purpose of it so it's like you can't be too mad if we get 80 cents on the dollar for Evan Mobley for a player who fits in much better. And then we go to an Eastern conference final or final and compete for a championship. Like I, I wouldn't be that mad if that was the case. It just, I, that's all I would care about is that how are we actually, what are our chances to win a, to winning a championship? So that's, that's the, the last thing I would say on that. Yeah. So you think basically your projection for the Cavs or likely projection is they, lose in the second round, maybe the conference finals. And then in your opinion, they should be active this summer and look to look to give Donovan Mitchell like a real chance to win a championship in Cleveland before he, if he to, to try to keep him around long-term. Yes. 100%. That's, that's what I think they should do. I'm a little worried. I mean, and hopefully people view Mobley the way that you said it, like long-term, long-term, I would still take Jared Allen over Evan Mobley. So Hopefully people think that that's crazy and Mobley still commands a ton of value on the trade market and you get something really good back that fits a lot better. Like imagine getting, I I can't think of a specific player off the top of my head, but an Isaac Okoro replacement that does the Isaac Okoro things, but like better and shoots better from three. Like how do you beat this Cavs team if they have a better version of Isaac Okoro out there with the the team that they already have? Like if you could get a ton back for Mobley, I would absolutely do it. Can you imagine if they had like an additive power forward who could shoot really well from three and <laughs> don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is uh, if Mensa uh, from Nick's film school is listening right now, he's 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 rolling over in his bed, not in his grave, um, because because Mensa and I have talked about like, what if the Cavs had traded Evan Mobley um, 
Evan Mobley in the deal for Donovan Mitchell instead of Lowry Markkinen because two things they would have not having not have to give up as much draft capital you know ostensibly and two Lowry Markkinen is I I know you would agree with that like is a way better player than Evan Mobley is like I, the, I I think that that is just true reality regardless of what his role is he's um, way better today and he's he's more additive <laughs> and he's more additive exactly so yeah that'd be scary obviously there's the the idea of like oh is would lowry be this lowry um if he stayed on the Cavs team and and that's questionable but i also think you know a lot of lowry's skills and and skill development came from like leading his team in the finnish national team and i think the shoot his shooting was going to come along regardless like i, I don't think it's like he's a great shooter because he's in Utah and the, you know, the air is thin or something like that. Like he was going to become a great shooter, I think regardless. So yeah, that, that would be, that'd be awesome. Um, that would be awesome. So, um, yeah, Jeff, any, any last words to close out the pod? This was a really, really good few conversations. I'm super happy that we had all these discussions. Yeah, this is great. Um, I have nothing else to say, actually. I, I am perfectly content with this show. <laughs> okay, yeah, we don't let's not say the wrong thing to to F it up like how we're we're a couple red pill bros out here uh, <laughs> <laughs> doing data dives. Um <laughs> for those who Look, didn't know. Uh, all I'm gonna say is XJ said before we got on that if his wife tries to change the radio, he slaps her hand away. So, you know, like <laughs> that's all I'm just gonna leave you with that, you know, like that's <laughs> Yes. Excuse and me, fiance. I'm sorry, Mrs. Future Mrs. X J. Fiance. Fiance, and she knows not to try that shit. I'll just say that. Um, <laughs> and thank you for listening. Please leave a like and subscribe for Red Pill Culture and for Data and for all the conversations that we've had. Um, yeah, thanks so much for listening and joining us. We appreciate it as always. This has been dude. Hot by history. the way, I'm sorry. I do have to say one last thing. Oh, say if it. People, if people, they, if people get offended at me making a red pill joke while I'm drinking from a fucking Taylor Swift cup, like, dude, <laughs> no, no, we're not. We're we're no. We don't need clarifications. If you can't can't read between the lines, dude, like you got you got bigger issues. I'm sorry. There's. <laughs> I think that's well said and well heard by me and our audience potentially. So, um, yes, this has been hot hand theory.